Let me invite you to take your Bibles and join me in the book of Hebrews, chapter 6. Hebrews, chapter 6. We'll continue to think about uh, this most important book, Hebrews, chapter 6. I want to say this morning that we are... We are alive at a time when uh, there's no end to uh, religious talk, and there's no end to religious thinking uh, because of communication. We uh, have access to uh, a good preaching, good teaching, uh, lots of printed literature, of course. And we also have access via the internet to a lot of things that are ultimately confusing. Some, not most, but some, is not even Christian. It's heretical. If you believe it, you'll go to hell. What we're going to talk about today is not one of those, but it it is a subject that has uh, no end to opinions at various extremes. If I were to ask you um, what might be a, a cardinal doctrine among Baptists, uh, you would perhaps use the phrase, once saved, always saved. You need to know that I, I don't like that phrase. I've never used that phrase, and I recommend you trash that phrase for reasons that will become obvious in a moment. Don't use that phrase. It doesn't communicate well. In fact, it communicates the opposite of what you want it to communicate. But I believe what you mean by that. Let's be clear on that. I do believe what you mean by that. I just don't think you communicate what you think you mean when you use that phrase. Uh, What what I would prefer you to say is that uh, the saints of God persevere, the perseverance of the saints. The people of God will persevere. I prefer you say that. Uh, By the way, the word perseverance is the word the Bible uses again and again, the the word perseverance or its similar translation, the word endurance. So perseverance and endurance are used again and again and again, and it's used here in the book of Hebrews. In Hebrews, a regular theme, remember this, as we said a couple of weeks ago, this particular book is written by what most people believe is a man with a pastor's heart. He may not have been a true pastor in the sense he's writing to a particular congregation and he's pastoring, shepherding a congregation, but he's certainly shepherding people he knows. And he, he writes pastorally. So his, his thoughts are not just up in the clouds somewhere about great high thoughts of God, but rather he's dealing with people whose lives are messy and, and struggle and, and, and they have a tendency to, to leave the gospel and to go astray. We've already considered that in uh, chapter 5. He, he rebukes them because they are dull of hearing. Dull of hearing, verse 11. We have much to say, but you're dull of hearing. You're sluggish. He's going to say more about that in chapter 6. He's going to bring that up again, that you you folks, I don't want you to be sluggish. So those are pastoral thoughts, pastoral exhortations, and so he writes that way. And in the midst of this letter, 
in chapter 2, chapter 3, chapter 5, chapter 6, chapter 10, chapter 12, and chapter 13, he is going to allude to the fact that they need to persevere. Hang in there. Keep going. Hang in there. Don't quit. Don't go away. Because if you do go away, this is where you end up. Uh, live under the authority of God and the witness of God. And so he's, he's writing again and again, don't forget who you are, don't forget what God has done, don't forget how this applies to your life. He writes as a pastor, dealing with people who are dealing with real-life problems and they have real-life voices in their ears calling them away. And so Hebrews is written to bring them back, to keep them focused on Jesus. Because if you leave Jesus, friend, where are you going? Where are you going? I'll tell you where you're going. You're going to hell. That's where you're going. If you leave Jesus. So it's not a minor thing. Turns out theology really matters. It turns out what you believe really has significance. But we all have loved ones and perhaps even past experiences with people who don't believe this cardinal Baptist doctrine that you must persevere to the end and that you can persevere to the end and that you will persevere to the end because of your faith and commitment to Christ. So as a result, the passage of Scripture that I'm about to read is among the most controversial paragraphs in the Bible. Not because people don't agree that it's biblical, not because people don't agree that uh, it's true or that, that it should be applied to our lives. It is that there is a group of people that go left and there's a group of people that go right with this particular paragraph. And we all know people who do this and we love them. We're not mad at them. I pray with a group of pastors every Thursday here in Clinton and I'm delighted to pray with people who do not believe what I believe about this matter. They're wrong, I'm right. <laughs> but they, they don't believe what I believe about this. I think it actually hurts them in terms of their peace and their comfort uh, to believe what they believe on this matter. It doesn't mean that they're going to hell. It doesn't mean that they're not believers. It doesn't mean that they're not dedicated, faithful Christian people. It is that they, they actually believe that they can lose their salvation and that having lost their salvation, they are now apostate. People can actually be saved and then not saved. People believe that. And they would point to this paragraph. This is the poster child paragraph that we're about to read. And so I, I would love to be here today two hours telling you what this one says. You won't stay, so I've got to get on it. So let's read. I'm going to read again uh, just to get the big picture. I'm going to start in verse 1 of chapter 6, and I'm going to read a few verses together with you. You'll remember that uh, we've read this already two weeks ago, so let me read it again. Therefore... Let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, of instruction about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. This we will do if God permits. In other words, we're going to leave that and go on if God permits. For, and this is where we begin to get 
into the tall grass. Verse 4, for it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, <coughs> excuse me, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. So, how do you understand a difficult passage of Scripture? Well, you read the, per the verses before it, and you read the verses after it, which is exactly what I've just modeled for you. Don't snatch a three verses out of context and interpret them a certain way without realizing what he's trying to do. So what is he trying to do? Well, beginning in verse 1, he tells us that he wants them to grow up, leave behind the elementary doctrines. There's more to Jesus than just the elementary doctrines. So it's not simply how to be saved, but is the implications of now that you are saved, what are the implications of that? How does that impact your life? How does it change the way you live? And so in the process of that, he offers an exhortation that sounds awfully like a, a strict warning, and it is. It's intended exactly to be a warning. And we're going to lean into this, these verses a minute and uh, understand the warning but let me just give you uh, two points that I want you to take away. So here's, here's my sermon outline. Uh, some of you really like sermon outlines. I don't, but I, I, I'm a preacher, so I have to submit. So here we go. Here's my two points. Number one, I want you to note that a, there, a faith that endures is a true faith. A faith that endures is a true faith. You'll see that plainly in a moment, I hope. And then secondly, a faith that endures inherits the promises. So a faith that endures is a true faith, and a faith that endures inherits the promises. And we shall see that plainly, momentarily. Now I want to call your attention that he wants them to, to grow up, to go on with God, to mature. Now I would say that that's the pastor's heart coming out again. He wants his congregation, in this case a if you will, an entire subset of people, Hebrews. He wants them to grow up and to go on and to leave behind elementary doctrines and to become mature followers. He's trying to stir them up from sluggishness. Wake up. Get going. Don't stop. 
Hang in there. These kinds of terms give the illusion here that he's trying to stir them up. We're going to see that again in chapter 10, that we are to gather as a congregation, not for ourselves. You're not here today specifically for yourself. You're here to stir up other people. You're here to encourage other people. You're here to exhort other people. You're here to say to other people, keep going, add a boy, way to go, don't stop. What can I do to help? Do you need some help? That, that's why we gather as a church. Otherwise, we just sit home in our pajamas, which, by the way, friends, is overrated. Because you're not helping anybody else. You say, well, I love to just feast on the word of all these wonderful preachers, and there are some wonderful preachers on television, and I thank God for the medium of television. But let me tell you something, friend. You're not doing a thing for anybody else. And if you'll read Hebrews 10, if you'll read this pastor, he'll tell you the reason we go to church is for everybody else. We'll get there. I hate to preach that sermon 12 times, but probably will before we get there. Hebrews 10. So what is he doing here? Well, he's encouraging them to go on, and then he gives this warning, verses 4, 5, 6, 7, 8. These verses are a warning. You'll note how he phrases it. It is impossible in the case of those who have, and then he uses five phrases that, that are synonymous with, with being converted. But he, he, he doesn't say this is how to be converted. He says, he implies that they are already converted. Now, this is where people diverge. This is how we end up with two schools of thought, significant schools of thought on this passage. There are people who believe that he's talking about a hypothetical non-Christian, that these, in fact, are people, hypothetically, if there was a person who had X and Y and Z, and he gives five things, you'll see them there in verse 4. They have once been enlightened. They have tasted the heavenly gift. They've shared in the Holy Spirit. They've tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come. Those five phrases, hypothetically, that's a person who doesn't exist, but hypothetically, it could be a person. And if that person did exist, it would be impossible to restore him if he falls away. And the word here translated falls away, fallen away, is the word, the Greek word from which we get the English word apostasy. Now, there are, there are entire Christian denominations that every third sermon is on apostasy, the dangers of apostasy. Don't leave the faith. Don't leave the faith. There are Christian denominations. Now, that's not the way I preach. That's not the way I think we ought to emphasize because the Bible doesn't emphasize that every third sermon. I'm not going to. But I will tell you that in Hebrews, he mentions it a lot. He warns them a lot. Because that's the current situation amongst the people he's writing to. They are in danger of falling away. They're not falling away, but they're in danger of falling away. And what do you do with hands that are falling? What do you do with legs that are weak? What do you do with hearts that are, that are growing cold? You stoke them. You encourage them. You lift them up. And one of the ways that you lift them up is not to imagine some hypothetical reality, which is not what this is, 
but to imagine that this is a real situation. These are true Christian people. Again, verse 4, they have once been enlightened. They have tasted the heavenly gift. This is terminology that's not inconsistent with what it means to describe a Christian. He's writing to Christians. By the way, the, the Bible, the New Testament written is written to Christians. There is only one of the four gospels that explicitly says, John, the gospel of John, that explicitly says it was written to those of you who do not believe so that you would know. So we know that the gospel of John explicitly is written for evangelism. But these epistles throughout the New Testament written by Paul, and now we come to the book of Hebrews as well, these are written to Christian people. So he's describing a Christian person. So he says, now, if you've tasted the heavenly gift and you shared in the Holy Spirit and tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come, in other words, if you've been joined to God through his son, the Lord Jesus, if you become converted, then recognize that if you fall away, there is no plan B. It is impossible, verse 4, and he concludes that phrase, verse 6, to restore them again to repentance. You can't repent twice and be converted twice. In fact, this passage is saying the opposite of what? those who believe that you can lose your salvation want it to say. A faith that endures is a true faith. Now, we know that people can fall away from what appears to be a true faith. What appears to be, emphasize the word, appears to be a true faith. Let me just give you a couple of examples. In 2 Peter chapter 2, 2 Peter chapter 2, you can read these words for yourself. Uh, verse 1. False prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their sensuality. Because of them, the way of the truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle. Their destruction is not asleep. Now, hear, hear what he said. There will be people in the church who will come in with false heresies, and they will lead people astray, and people will go with them. In other words, he tells us that, in fact, people who appear to be sheep turn out not to be sheep. Now, we all know, you may be imagining somebody in your mind right now. I'm not suggesting you do that. But I am suggesting that we all know that the Bible is not silent on the fact that it is possible to give the outward appearance of being a sheep and not be one. I'll give you another example. 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2, verse 18. Here John writes, Children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued. 
with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. Now, which camp do you think the Apostle John is in? The notion that you can lose your salvation or the notion that somehow you will persevere to the end? I assure you that 1 John 2 makes very clear that John is in the latter camp. John would make an outstanding Baptist. So a faith that endures is a true faith. So why this warning then in Hebrews? Some say the reason that that the writer of Hebrews gives this warning is because this is possible. In other words, why bring up a situation that's impossible? You know, if you you had two heads, if you had, uh, you know, four hands, well, these are impossible situations, uh, obviously. So why bring up such an illustration? It doesn't have any traction in our hearts or minds if it cannot be true. Why bring it up if it's not true? It can't be true. Well, he brings it up because he's reminding them by means of the warning that they are to go on. By means of the warning that, that, that not going on is, is perilous beyond measure. You're lost and you're eternally lost. That's not who you are. That's not what you are. How do we know he's writing to Christian people and exhorting them this way? Because that's what he says in verse 9. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved. Beloved, that's a term that the Bible uses when uh, dialoguing with Christian people. He's interacting with Christian people. We feel sure, he says, of better things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust to overlook your work and the love that you've shown for his name. In other words, these folks are Christian people. So the faith that endures is a true faith. It's not an apostate faith. There is no no ground or no room for apostasy among Christian people. So he's exhorting them to go on with God. Uh, let, Let me get into the weeds again. There's one more objection that people give that suggests that somehow... What Baptists believe here is wrong, and that what other groups believe is right. And they would say, if, if, if it's not possible, uh, then he shouldn't have brought it up. He, he wouldn't have brought it up. So it, it has to be possible. That's one argument. The, o- the other argument is the, the notion that somehow if, if, if God has it all sort of worked out, if, if you Baptists are right, and that 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 people who are converted will persevere, then why does he have to offer warnings? Why don't we just turn it loose and just, you know, let it go? You know, if it's, if it's predestined, if it's preordained, if it's just determined by God, if, if, if you can be saved and then it doesn't matter, then why, why bring up this warning? Because the warning suggests it does matter. So that's, that's the argument. That somehow the, the end is fixed because you Baptists believe that the end is fixed. Uh, that, that somehow this man who, who comes to Christ is, is therefore, he's sealed. He, he, and by the way, that's, that's exactly what we believe. He is sealed. He's sealed by the work of the Holy Spirit. And the reason we believe that is because the Bible says that. That very term. 
So you Baptists believe that. So then that gives a man a blank check, carte blanche. He does whatever he wants. That's why I don't use the phrase once saved, always saved. Let me, let me push into that a minute. I, I have never, never heard that phrase used one time advocating for somebody who is uh, living a, a, if you will, a, a bold life for Christ. I, I've always heard that phrase used as some sort of get out of hell free card in describing somebody whose life is not representing Christ. In other words, I've always heard it used to save somebody whose life is apparently circling the drain. Always. So it's always, a, 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 if you will, an anchor that, that protects us from that. So I don't use that phrase, once saved, always saved, and I recommend you not use it. That's, that phrase is not in the Bible, and so I, it's a man-made phrase, and I'm a big fan of trying to use biblical terminology because that way you can, everybody knows exactly what you're talking about. You can go to the reference. There it is right in the Bible, those very words. So the Bible talks about endurance, perseverance. It talks about a, a true faith that endures. Now, what has that got to do with with anything. Well, let me sort of try to land the plane here. What happens here is, is God certainly, once a person enters into salvation, God certainly secures them. God certainly seals them. We find that testimony even in this book. We'll see that again before we close Hebrews. But God seals them. But in the process of doing so, God also exhorts them to finish. Now, we know, we know that, that ultimately God is in control of all things. If you will, the big picture is God's in control and that everything's worked according to his plan and so forth. We know all those things, but it's the, it's the details. It's the day-to-day. It's the d- daily choices that you and I make, the daily opportunities to succeed or the daily opportunities to fail where we get weak. After all, Moses isn't, is commanded to hold up his hands in the Old Testament. And as he held up his staff and held up his hands, that Israel would prevail. But then when he got weak, Israel would not prevail. So God provided two men, Aaron and Hur, to come and hold up his hands for him. In other words, he needed some assistance. That's what God does in these warnings. These warnings are means of assistance. Now, in the Old Testament, in the Moses illustration, God used a real-life human being to hold up his hands. But here, he's using real-life words and exhortations. He's using theological truths to work with our heart and our minds to hold up our hands, to keep us going. And he says, don't fail to finish. You must finish. Because if you don't finish and you apostatize, There's no plan B. There's no second option. You cannot crucify Christ all over again. It is impossible to crucify Christ a second time. You cannot do that. So because of that, you cannot leave Christ. You must go on. You must go on. Now, why does God tell us that we must go on if God has secured the end? Why does it matter? I'll give you two illustrations. 
Take Daniel in the Old Testament. The Bible tells in the Old Testament through the book of Jeremiah that God will send Israel into exile for 70 years. Jeremiah prophesied that God would use the Babylonians and he would send Israel into exile for 70 years. Daniel is one of those men taken into exile. When you read the book of Daniel, Daniel is praying. And what is he praying? He's praying the promise of Jeremiah. He says, claiming Jeremiah, God, keep your promise. God, keep your promise. Daniel prays repeatedly, 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 God, keep your promise. God, keep your promise. God, keep your promise. Now, you might say, why pray if it's already fixed? Because God not only ordains the end, friend, he, in, he ordains the means to the end. Why do you pray? Because God commanded you to pray. Because God, in his own way, works through your prayers. Because prayerlessness is a denial of confidence in the end or confidence in God. So there's an example. God knows the end. He's already told us the end. Long before it ever happened, he predicted the end, secured the end, and then he sent Daniel into exile to pray for the end. Doesn't make a lot of sense, does it? Unless you're God. Since none of us are, all we are left to do is to be faithful. Second illustration. Let me show you this. Pretty obvious. Acts 27. Turn there quickly. Acts 27. You'll remember that uh, Paul is in a ship and he's on his way to Rome where he's going to stand trial before Caesar. And they encounter what we would call uh, a cyclone or a hurricane in the Mediterranean. And uh, these professional sailors are fearing for their lives. And Paul offers hope. Look at verse 21, Acts 27, 21. Since then, you, you've been without food for a long time. Paul stood up among them and said, Men, you should have listened to me and not set sail from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. Yet now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night there stood before me an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I've been told, but we must run aground on some island. So here's the end. The end is, Paul stands up before these men and he says, listen, an angel's come and he's told me every last one of us are going to survive. Okay, well, it's fixed. Well, that means, some would say, you can do whatever you want. You can live any way you want. You can have riotous parties, riotous living. You can, you can do this and that and whatever. This is the one saved, always saved argument. I'm saved so I can do whatever I want. Doesn't matter. I got my fire insurance, hell insurance. I can live any way I want because I'm saved. Once saved, always saved. I can do whatever I want and so forth and so on. No, friend. No. No, Hebrews says that I will not have you be sluggish. It's time to lay aside your infancy. And to grow up. Because if you don't grow up, all that's left is destruction. 
So Paul says, everybody's going to live. Everybody's going to live. But that's not the way it worked out. Look at verse 27. When the 14th night had come, as we were being driven across the Adriatic Sea about midnight, the sailors suspected they were nearing a land. So they took a sounding, they found 20 fathoms. A little farther on, they took a sounding again, found 15. And fearing that we might run on the rocks, they let down four acres from the stern and prayed for day to come. And as the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship, they had lowered the ship's boat into the sea under pretense of laying out anchors from the bow. Paul said to the centurion and to the soldiers, unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. So the soldiers cut away the ropes of the ship's boat, cut away the lifeboat, and sent it packing. Wait a minute. You just told us, an angel told us that everybody's going to survive, and now you're telling us some of us are under the threat of dying. Now, which is it? Are we all going to live or are some of us going to die? And the answer to that is, well, that depends on you. If you stay in the boat, you live. But if you get out of the boat, you die. You want to go to heaven? You better stay in the boat. And you better be a sailor. But if you want to go to hell, just get out of the boat and do whatever you want. And you'll go to hell. There's a warning here. And they were smart enough to figure it out. So they came over and they cut the boat ropes and let it go. We need to cut some stuff out of our lives too. Because they're working against us. They're undermining our faith. They're undermining our obedience. They're taking us farther and farther from God. And we become sluggish. Not because God is not true, but because we are lazy and we are in danger, danger for our very souls. So friend, don't do that. Hear the warning. And the warning is intended to keep you in the boat. The warning is intended to keep you alive. The warning is intended to keep you safe. I'm out of time, but I have to show you this. Quickly, Hebrews, one last thing. A faith that endures inherits the promises. You'll notice how he concludes. And we desire, verse 11, each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. You see, all of us live on if you will, between the promises, between the time the promise was made and the promise is actually going to be kept. We, leave, we live in that middle ground. 
And because we live in that interim, there are people who say, well, listen, that promise was made so long ago, and if it hasn't actually come true yet, then it's not going to come true. But of course, that puts you, friend, in the seat of God who gets to decide how long before the promises actually come true, and you don't get to be in that seat. But the one who endures, the one who keeps going, the one who doesn't decide, I'm done, but actually keeps going and endures and perseveres, that man, that woman, inherits the promises. That man will live long enough to see the promises kept. Now, ultimately, for Christian people, that means death. Death is release. Death is, is it's the opportunity for us to walk through the door into the promised land, the promised presence. Jesus tells us in John 14, I go to prepare a place for you so that where I am, you may be. I promise you, I'm going to get it ready for you. Well, friend, if you don't die, you don't go. You have to die. That's why the scripture says, precious in the sight of God are the death of his saints. We grieve because we've lost their presence. And that's a real thing. Don't minimize grief. But understand, those who've gone on to be with the Lord actually inherit the promises. That's what they've been living for. Why would you begrudge them that? Why would you say to them, that's not important? Why would you say to them, they should stay here? They should want to be here. Or that I want them to be here, and that should trump everything. Why, why do those things matter? Ultimately, we want our family, our friends, our loved ones here. A absolutely, we do. But we do not begrudge them their reward. The reward of what? Of keeping faith. Of not jumping ship. Not cutting corners. So a faith that endures inherits the promises. By implication, a faith that doesn't endure doesn't inherit promises. So what does God intend by this warning here? He intends, he intends to hold up your arms. He intends to strengthen your weak knees. He intends to strengthen your weak heart and says, keep going, keep going. You've tasted, you've seen, you've been enlightened. You know this Christ. Don't jump ship. Go with Christ. I beg of you today, if you're here today and you don't know Christ, come to Christ. And if you're here today and you know Christ, then I beg of you, to not be sluggish, but to go on and to go hard after him. You will one day understand how important, how valuable, how great a treasure that has been in your life. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that you give us grace to hear these words and to believe them. We pray for your mercies. Thank you. Thank you for your care for us. Thank you that you love us so, provide for us, and most of all, you provide for us eternally in Jesus. And I pray, Father, we might believe in him and trust him and to hope in him and to be committed 
to righteous living again and again and again to show the world that we are followers of this one. So give us grace to trust him more, even now. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. Amen. Hey, before you go...